This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Naomi Wolf, it is wonderful to have you back. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Peter. I'm really happy to be talking to you again. Great. And we are going to look at your latest book, which is out, I think it's out on 9th of November, is it? Yes. So it's just coming out. Perfect Christmas present. Um, and I have loved reading through it, especially the the spiritual aspect that, that comes out. But let me bring it up. That is it. Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith and Resistance in a New Dark Age. Um, people can obviously find you on uh, Twitter, uh, on Getter, anywhere else. Uh, that's your handle. And dailyclout.io, you, of course, are the co-founder and CEO. And we've had uh, we had Amy Kelly on uh, probably six months ago. Great conversation with her on the fighter documents uh, and delved into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually thought it's interesting that you've come from from the left, and I read the the Tucker Carlson uh, piece right at the beginning. Naomi Wolf is one of the bravest and clearest thinking people I know. The reason you hear the forces of repression so desperately trying to dismiss her is because she is right. I wondered how long ago would you have to go to think that a endorsement by Tucker would have been the kiss of death? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've never really been, I've been a a fixture on the legacy media left for my whole career. Um, But I never really understood like tribalism. I've always been really happy to talk to conservatives or, you know, anyone. I mean, that that's how I learned things. So I, I think I would have always been happy to talk to Tucker Carlson. But it is absolutely true that the minute I began talking to conservatives, also the minute I began uh, reporting accurately on the dangers of the mRNA injection, which happened to coincide, um, I became a non-person on the left. And that is part of the story I tell in um, Facing the Beast. Mm, well, absolutely. At the the beginning was intriguing. Uh, chapter one, A Lost Small Town. And one of the, the lines in it is, I forgive my neighbor who froze when I hugged her. I forgive my other neighbors who told me she was making homemade soup and fresh bread and that I could join her for some if I was vaccinated. If I was unvaccinated, however, she explained, someday she might consent to walk outdoors with me. Um, I think when people have experienced the last three years, many people are stuck at, at that stage of anger at what has happened. Um, and it's it's wonderful to talk to see you referring so many times actually you forgive those injustices um and maybe you want to just touch on how you've arrived at that because forgiveness is not necessarily a natural emotion anger is the first one that comes up but you've moved well past that and i think that's enlightening well i don't want to overstate my um evolved nature as a being <laughs> on the planet uh forgiveness doesn't mean i'm not furious um i think you know, I keep using that uh, quote from Fitzgerald, the genius is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time and still function. Um, I am furious. I'm furious at all of them. And and I forgive them, right? Meaning, meaning if all I am is furious, then I'm going to shrivel up and die from rage, right? 
Uh, but a lot of the book is also about accountability. And a lot, a lot of my life day by day is about accountability because um, maybe not the men and women in the street who whom I describe in that chapter who uh, were forced by the local boards of health putting pressure on the local, I guess, business council, uh, whatever regulates businesses, I guess all the board of health, they were the ones who forced these, you know, small business people who had everything to lose by their businesses going under, forced them to become police of their neighbors' bodies, forced teenagers working at the local movie theater to shun, you know, and enforce a two-tier society, forced the florist to, you know, leap at customers and say, are you vaccinated? No one, you know, no one's sane would have wanted to do that. Um, but it, a, a lot of what I explored, I'm the granddaughter of um, Jews in Europe and of a woman particularly who uh, lost nine brothers and sisters in the Holocaust. But a lot of what I'm exploring in Facing the Beast is that parallel with 1931 to 1933 when people were forced to do things they didn't want to do that ended up in genociding their neighbors. Um, that's exactly where, where we were and are at. So yes, forgiveness is just like, how do I remain e emotionally and spiritually alive and growing? Um, but it doesn't mean we don't haul these, the leaders of this effort off to, you know, in, in, in handcuffs to prison, you know, to face trial and criminal charges. We do. Um, chapter two, opening boxes from 2019. And in it, you, you talked about, um, 11th of March, 2020, uh, you and Bran looked at each other and said, we're getting out of here. And that was um, through the, the governor there, Andrew Cuomo, uh, beginning to lock down. I think he talked about Broadway um, being being closed. Um, now, that was intrigued because I think a lot of you talked to a lot of people. It took a while to realize actually what is happening is not going to blow over in a couple of weeks. And people hoped and believed that actually within three months uh, we might be past it. And then the penny begun to drop. And I've talked to friends, uh, friends in Canada, actually, who fled mm -hmm. Canada, who did the same thing, got in a car and just drove out of there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, tell us that because you saw bad things were coming right at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Most people aren't willing to, to, to take that jump, they kind of sit and they hope it will go away and don't act as quickly as you did. Yeah, that was such an interesting moment. And I, you know, I'm often so grateful that my husband, Brian O'Shea, has life experiences that are not the same as mine. He spent um, much of his career in military intelligence uh, embedded with special forces and in conflict areas around the world. And the balance of his career in um, intelligence, intelligence. So it weirdly mirrors being a journalist in conflict areas and in uh, journalists and spies, all, you know, both are researchers. So we really understand each other. But I think both of us from different times in our lives when we've been in conflict areas and very unstable um, political situations, when, when the governor can say Broadway is closing and Broadway closes all at once. Um, both of us immediately understood that it wasn't America anymore. You know, in America, you can't just close someone's business, you know, by a fiat, right? You can't, and, and, and in, in America, business owners who don't want to close, don't close, you know, it's their decision. So once the state can do something as draconian as closing a gigantic cultural engine 
which employs thousands of people in the greatest city on earth, um, then they can build quarantine camps. They can put people in quarantine camps. They can force injections. They can force organ harvesting. They can really do whatever they want. Um, and so I'd written a book in 2008 called The End of America that looked at closing societies, uh, times and places where fragile democracies were um, undermined or over, overthrown uh, by totalitarians on the left or on the right. And I saw that there's a map um, that they all take the same 10 steps. So by, by having done that research, I realized, well, emergency law, which this governor declared is step 10. And he wasn't lifting it. You know, it was two weeks to flatten this curve. He wasn't lifting it in April, in May, in June, it was still emergency law. And so by June, you know, when we were already in the woods um, and it was unlawful, according to him, by no representative process for us to have more than six people in our home. Uh, I realized this is full on totalitarianism. They're never going to let us out without a fight. I put that, put that on social media. This is it. They're not letting us out. Um, and, uh, and I invited um, 50 people into my home for a potluck and I put it on social media because I, I at that point realized the only way we're going to have a democracy back ever, and this is history informing me, is if we all resist immediately and refuse to comply and, and do it very flagrantly. Mm-hmm. Now, chapter three, what is, what is a miracle? Um, you talk about feeling overwhelmed at what was happening. Um, how can we overcome the adversaries uh, that we face? Um, and you mentioned a moment where the the mountain range seems to light up um and your lies i started laughing it was as if god was saying don't be silly just look at me was the depth of my despair answered by a massive blaze of gold just when i needed a miracle um or or was a miracle simply happened to look up and notice uh, something that line was a miracle i think it's what well, eric metax i think wrote a book uh, about miracles mm-hmm. um as a fascinating concept being a brit not one never discussing faith um Ooh. and obviously in the us it's a different bolder attitude but still amongst many people this is not a conversation you have and certainly miracles are definitely not on the conversation topic. <laughs> Tell us about that, I, I love just that title was miracles a fascinating title yeah thank you um yeah well you know peter as you have seen i've kind of dropped a lot of my um prohibitions and inhibitions, you know, really my deep depersoning by the left was a blessing in disguise because I have nothing left to lose by saying what I really think. Um, And you're absolutely right. I lived in Britain for many years. I lived in Scotland too. Uh, You're Scottish, right? No? I'm I'm Northern Irish, but we'll have an affinity with the Scots just across the water. (laughs) I think I've asked you that before. Forgive me. Um, But yes, the the Celts. Um, uh, And it, Britain is super, it's not just secular, it's like it is considered very tacky to mm. talk about faith. And it's considered very tacky to talk about faith in my sophisticated, you know, Ivy League, uh, you know, West West and East Coast elite world. Uh, you're allowed to go to synagogue, you know, and say, well, I'm, you know, I went up for Yom Kippur, I went for Rosh Hashanah, or if you're Christian, you know, you can have Christmas, I suppose, but yeah. you're really, it's weird if you go to church on Sunday. It's certainly weird if you, um, I mean, miracles and that whole discourse of God actually having a hand in, in your actual life is really interestingly considered to be so vulgar 
to discuss. It's like worse. It's more taboo than, you know, sex addiction or gambling addiction or alcoholism. It's like super unsayable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, was having, um, you know, the, the story of the last two and a half years is also a story of a journey of faith on my part. And I did have experiences that you really can't explain, <laughs> you know, and, and that were positive, but, but also, also, as I pointed out, like what's a miracle, there are miracles all around us that we just don't categorize as miracles, like a baby being born. That's a miracle. How did, you know, so much has to go right for that to happen. And the fact that there can be life is a miracle. Actually, Orthodox Jews understand this. They're always like, you know, thanking God for like very mundane things that we overlook. Um, But, you know, love is a miracle. You know, families are miracles. Like it's, it's all a miracle, right? Healing is a miracle. Um, I did have these, this super weird experience, which I've videotaped of, you know, my little dog mushroom was passing away at 18. And as he was dying in the river near our house, there was a long, suddenly out of nowhere, it was midwinter, a long stemmed red rose, a real one, Um, you know, just not over the water, not under the water like hovering under the water about 10 inches under this rushing icy stream. And it literally just stayed there for 10 days. It wasn't caught on anything. It was completely not understandable uh, in any physical terms that, that I had. And I showed Brian, like literally I posted this. It's he's a witness. A million people are witnesses that this happened. And then when mushroom died um, it, you know, the, the, the petals released and the, the, it flowed away. But you know, roses have all kinds of symbolic meaning in a bunch of religions. It, was it a miracle? I don't know, but, but you know, and that was Brian's line, what's a miracle? Uh, maybe that's the wrong question. Like maybe, maybe it's all a miracle, <laughs> you know, and it just takes our noticing it. I mean, part of why I shared that is I also kind of more quickly came to the conclusion that um, there was a force of evil that had been unleashed in 2020 that is still with us, that is more massive and gigantic and not explainable in normal human political rationalist terms than I had ever witnessed in my lifetime. Um, and that it was like negative proof. If a force of evil can be this big, this sophisticated, get all the leaders of all the nations to do exactly the same things with the exact same language and exactly the same time sequence and cast a spirit of, you know, delusion on so many people I knew and loved that was impenetrable, but not open to any fact um, and, and divide families, you know, and allow a two-tier discriminatory society all over the West, right, in nations predicated by law and human rights and equality under the law, right? Overnight that everyone embraced a discrimination society. Um, not, not to mention other horrible things like sacrificing children, you know, feeding children up to an experimental injection. Um, the idea of the loss of bodily autonomy, which is part of slavery, right? Like all of this was so big and, and happening in a way that human history doesn't unfold, right? It, human history, even with the worst tyrants, there are factions, there's backbiting, there's uh, assassination attempts. Not everyone goes along with it all over the world all at once ever. So I had to conclude that that scale of evil was metaphysical. 
because human practice, it's, even the worst human politics can't accomplish that. And subsequently, I concluded that if something that evil was metaphysical, it must be aimed at something metaphysical that was good. And so I became much more open to the idea that God or the you know creative force in the world um, that is good uh, exists and exists in an, a really intimate way and cares about humanity and that this was a struggle between good and evil uh, for the bodies and souls of humanity. And you that whole struggle against good and evil, I mean, that's that's personally one of the issues which has helped me through it, and that is not a um, a stick to lean on, that's accepting truth, because chapter five, thinking like a t- tyrant, um, and if you look into what has happened, the evil, but then your chapter four, principalities and powers, that you realize that there is something more behind it, because if all you see is the evil in humanity, then it's hopelessness, but if you do believe and understand and realize there is that battle between good and evil, which is bigger than that human aspect, then it means you can sit back, you can reassess it, and it's not hopelessness. It's actually looking past that. And to me, that is the the way we actually live through and see past the chaos that we faced over the last three years. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you if I understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure that I agree that humanity is essentially good, I think. And this is a difference between, I, I think it's a, I've had really interesting conversations that reveal the real differences in heritage between Jews and Christians. Um, Christians are pretty sanguine right now because they, in their book, it all ends happily, right? <laughs> With Revelation, Jesus returns, it's all fine. <laughs> and and as a Jew, I'm freaking out. <laughs> and, and I'm freaking out because it doesn't really necessarily end happily in our story, right? Um, there were times when, you know, the Jerusalem was reduced to rubble and its inhabitants were, you know, killed or enslaved. There were times when we were exiled to Babylon and we wept beside the waters of Babylon and we missed, you know, Zion. There were times when we were fed into ovens, you know, in post kind of Christian uh, history or murdered by the Inquisition. Like it doesn't end happily necessarily for us. That said, like without, without, how can I put it? I think we're in a time of moral testing. And I don't think it's just going to be okay if we don't step up. And that's really the message of the Hebrew Bible, which I'm reading the 1560 Bible um, aloud, which is the Founders Bible, very important Bible in England um, and Scotland. It was a Bible created before the King James Bible by English dissidents, reformers, um, who were would be put to death in England, some of them were put to death, but they fled to Geneva. And there they uh, just translated the Bible uh, into English from the Hebrew. So it's the most accurate direct translation I've read. I read Hebrew as well. And I'm not surprised that it's the Founders Bible and the Puritans Bible because um, it has such a different, uh, the translation is so different from the King James and other subsequent Bibles. My point is, it's definitely a Bible that conveys the message of the Hebrew Bible, which is don't wait for an intermediary. Someone else is not going to make it okay. You have to, you know, walk with God, you know, along in the relationship that God set out 
and sought out, you know, with human beings, if you want to be blessed, if you want life, like literally, and um, horrible things happen, not because of a punitive God, but because of universal laws, when people choose to uh, worship themselves as, you know, as, as it's put, I think, several times in the Hebrew Bible. So I guess I'm not saying you're not right. I personally don't think labels matter anymore. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying there are different um, kind of calculuses in the different religions about what we do. And right now I'm very much in the Hebrew Bible calculus of, I don't think we're going to survive this if we don't proactively, every single one of us kind of align with um, the relationship that God set out for us with him. A hundred percent. Following God, I don't think negates our responsibility because back if Abraham had not followed the call of God, then the history would be different. So we have our role to play. Uh, but I think probably the the promises are what God says for a thousand generations. Right. So it it lasts past good times and bad times and then goes further. So, But none of that negates our position responsibility to do what we can do that we are called to do and the skills and the abilities and the talents that we have to actually make a difference. I agree with you, absolutely. The Chapter 6, The Subtlety of, of Monsters. Again, it can be over. You talk about vaccines did not manage to wipe out humanity's ability to reproduce. The live births are down 13 to 20%. Um, uh, it was central bank digital currencies, 50-minute cities, um, internet of things, uh, GMO mosquitoes. Uh, there are whole Dutch farmers debanking. as a whole uh, plethora. Um, I've probably... When you see that, because it all comes, it is subtle. It is for our good, for our health, to help us, for our convenience. Convenience comes up often. Um, how do you get past or how do you kind of persuade people that these are evil? Because often you can point out these issues, 50-minute cities, oh, well, being local is, is good. No, no, no. It's about restricting you, controlling you. And sometimes people cannot, despite what's happened in the last three years, cannot see past that government propaganda, I guess. Right. Yeah, wow, that's such an important question. Um, and again, I think there are uh, regional differences in how easy or hard it is to persuade the people around you that that you know it may seem convenient or green, but it's really going to enslave you and your children forever. Um, so I wrote in the bodies of others, my last book, um, about the the really toxic threat um, that the EU represents, in my view. And I'm sure from what you just said, you might agree with this, um, or you already agree, and I should, should learn from you. But the EU, like, again, having lived in Britain, you know, before Brexit, uh, for many years, I was very aware that, you know, Britain has a robust tradition of individualism and freedom of speech and the rule of law and, you know, people clamoring, you know, chartism, clamoring for representation in government. Um it's not a Marxist uh, uh, communitarian uh, history um, at all, or even that's not even organic to Britain's, um, not Britain, not Wales, not Ireland, not Scotland, you know, no one's ideology, right? It's, it's not an organic part of the culture. And, and yet I noticed over 10 or 15 years how like really communist ideas were chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at that British tradition. Uh, and then I, I really noticed in about 2015 or 16 that no one knew how to lobby their MPs anymore. And when I would ask people, do you, you know, later under 
I'm not sure I have the timeline right, but when Britain was was part of Europe, I would say, do you know how to lobby your MEP? You know, and of course, then I looked at the structure of the uh, European Union, and sure enough, it was a giant mess that pretty much came down to it's not a representative government at all. You know, not a meta government. It's not a gov. It's not a government thing. It's a corporate thing that doesn't allow any real representation. Um, and literally British journalists I knew didn't know that, right? They, they didn't know that. Like the Sunday Times journalists did not know that the structure of the EU did not allow for any actual representation. Uh, it's it's kind of, um, there's fog of war, you know, or glitter thrown in people's eyes about like red tape and bureaucrats. It's much more serious than that. There's like no representation, no transparency, no accountability. It's, it's a coup, like Europe is a coup. Where, so where I'm going with this is, um, and in retrospect, that explained a lot of the opposition to Brexit, I think, and the, the efforts to kind of uh, soften and soften and soften Brexit, as if you can soften one country not being part of, you know, another group of countries. Like That's the world we're in, where that, that ideology is you can have a kind of virtual separation of countries that isn't real. Um, I'm going somewhere with that, which is I think it's now a lot harder for you in Britain to persuade people that the state isn't the source of everything than it would have been even 15 years ago. Um, and uh, the other problem is people get so many benefits from the state uh, in Europe and in Britain, and, and that's messaged as... Um, well, as benefits, right? And it, it's it's very tempting. Uh, well, I I have this free, this and free that, and and I love it. Like I used to be thoroughly on board with free healthcare and free universities, and you know everything. Why not? I mean, fabulous. The people deserve it. But the the dark side is that the discourse of individualism and individual rights. Um, becomes very uh, theoretical. You know, once they give you all these good things, then when they say, but you can't drive your car from here to here, it's very hard to realize that that was a poisoned gift. Um, in America, we're in a little bit of a different situation, thankfully, again, historically, and I don't mean to be like, you know, nye, nye, nye. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I, you know, I think both countries have their challenges, but just like, you know, there's a downside of individualism, like, kids don't always get fed and elders don't always get looked after and so on. Uh, the upside is now in this crisis, um, we're like, hell no, you know, and we also have a wonderful thing that the founders left for us, which is states. And so states at a state level can reject lockdowns or mandatory vaccination or masking um, or, you know, closures of businesses, uh, even if a federal government is out of control. Um, so I, what I'm seeing in America is uh, people becoming very aware, um, based on an ideology of individual rights and individualism, that, you know, how central bank digital currency can switch you off, for instance, or um, my video about in March of 2021, I think about how uh, uh, vaccine passports that are digital can become a social credit system, you know, very quickly to banning them in 33 states. Um, but it's a constant fight to remind people, you know, your liberty depends on protecting your liberty. Luckily, we have a discourse of that still. I feel like in Britain that that discourse got really, um, I mean, you're almost a racist 
you know, in, in Britain or in Europe, if you talked about being, being, being proud of being British or being proud of being French, that doesn't necessarily have to be a racist posture at all. Um, but it, I think it, there was a, a deliberate cultural attack on the language of individualism and rights in Britain and in Europe. No, completely. Um, I could delve much deeper in that, but I won't. Um, chapter seven, White Feathers, you say in the DMs, people whom I knew socially or professionally, people from journalism, politics, medicine, uh, would say, Naomi, I really respect your actions right now. I totally agree with what you're saying. But of course, I can't do anything. And often these people were in positions of power. They could do something. And you mentioned individuals who have stood up and Dr. Peter McCulloch, Ed Dowd, um, Steve Bannon in journalism, many others. I kind of thought that um, the desire to do right would rise up and would win the day, but obviously not. Um, how did you, were you as surprised at that, the people who the penny kind of was dropping and yet they just refused to do the right thing because of fear of what would happen? You know, Peter, I was completely surprised. I, to this day, I'm really in shock um, at what I witnessed because we all assumed, you know, we would know what to do if it was Germany in 1933 and that we would stand up against the Nazis and we would hide Anne Frank and we would, or, you know, if, if, if it was 1854, we would shelter that runaway slave. You know, we, we on the left especially thought we were the good guys, you know, and that we stood up against tyrants. So I was and remain appalled at the um, quizzling uh, colors revealed by my former peers and friends that, that the, and even more appalled that they, they're not ashamed. You know, like I've literally had people say, you know, loved ones say, well, I, um, you know, I'm going to get a, a booster, not because I believe in it or want to, but because I don't want to be kicked out of my bridge group or my, you know, play group, my mom's play group, or, well, you know, as I wrote in, in, uh, facing the beast, the, the men, I mean, I'm sorry to gender this, but, you know, I've, I've kind of among the many things I've rethought on my journey is the, the, the point of men. <laughs> and um, I mean, I've always been a fan of men uh, as much as women, but um, like men are kind of supposed to protect women and children, you know, in battle conditions or in dangerous conditions. I don't know why. I just, I just think that's evolutionary uh, necessity and, also kind of a the appropriate way to honor women and children um so i would I, I guess what i was astonished to find is that on the right men still think they should be courageous um and stand up for their ideals and take risks uh on behalf of the greater good or their loved ones um, who are dependent on them and on the left, I was astonished to see grown men telling me why they were, you know, I'm not going to say the word because it's a naughty word, but, you know, very cowardly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and have no shame or self-consciousness about it. And it's like, I'm out here at the front, man. You know, I'm taking the hits. I have to, I have to, I had to have two armed, like retired NYPD detectives 
flanking me at my last speech, right? I'm scared. It, you know, of course, I married my bodyguard, but, you know, out in the world, I'm still scared. And these guys are like, well, obviously, I'm not going to say anything because, you know, my boss might get mad at me or I might lose some marginal professional advantage or major professional advantage. And it's like people's lives are at stake. Children are at stake. You know, they're they're injecting these tiny people who are not old enough to make decisions for themselves, who have no informed consent because they're minors. And you're not going to step out front with something you know to be wrong and say it's wrong or, or, I mean, don't get me started because obviously I have a lot of unprocessed, you know, grief and rage about this, but um, the two tier society, like all of these people are so right on. They would never discriminate against a gay couple or a lesbian couple or a person of color ever, ever. They think that conservatives are the haters, right? And the people who discriminate. But these people, these same people overnight in New York City and L.A. and other cities embraced a discrimination society and, and colluded with it a thousand percent and had no problem with the fact that I could not walk into, you know, most of the buildings in New York City. I could not sit indoors and eat with my family in a restaurant. I had to sit in the street like an animal. You know, they had no problem with that. They had no problem with turning away or, or firing, you know, workers and students disproportionately people of color and lower income people, no problem. They had no problem with laws that were basically Jim Crow laws that applied to vaccination status. And, and a lot of them like gave rise to hateful rhetoric, you know, exactly like racism or anti-Semitism related to unvaccinated people. So I lost all respect, you know, I could go on to like subcategories like feminists, right? We know it's not, we're not babes in the woods. We know that big pharma has experimented on women's bodies and that corporations sometimes ex exploit women. We know that. I helped to break the story about silicone breast implants that were taken off the market. Um, we know about thalidomide. We know about vaginal mesh. We know about, you know, estrogen being too high in birth control pills. You know, we're, this is so like feminism 101 that yeah. corporations and, and pharma and medicine can exploit women. Um, it's not news. And I was a heroine when I pointed this out with like industrialized birthing practices in, in, you know, my previous books among these same people. But the fact that these injections are 62% of the adverse events are women, they're creating massive uh, disabilities based on like bleeding among women um, they're sterilizing women. They're they're compromising placentas. Uh, maternal deaths are up by forty percent. Babies are being born, you know, to birthed two months premature because the placentas are impaired by these uh, lipid nanoparticles. There's poison in breast milk. It's a war on women, especially women's bodies. And I'm the crazy person for for reminding people that you know women are being harmed and babies are being harmed. Where are you know, and I talk about this in detail, I name names, like Justices Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, they went on and on and on about, you know, my body, my choice when it came to abortion rights. And, and they ruled against people having the right to decide what's injected into their own bodies. It's the same rhetoric. So yes, I lost a lot of respect for these people. But obviously it was you pointing that out um, as a tweet that first 
brought you into being a, a conspiracy theorist, brought you into being a tad. And and then the Pfizer documents, when you brought that out, it, they're so what uh, you look at over the last thing three years and you see points where individuals or organizations have produced the evidence. This is what is happening um, with Ed Dodd with his book listing showing all the um, sudden deaths uh, with this the Pfizer documents uh, how you and Daily Clout and and the thousands of volunteers pulled that together. Um, I mean, the, tell us about the response to that because when you put the information, you say there it is, it is happening. Here is the data. It's not just a tweet. It's just the data with all the references to it. And yes, uh, hmm. Hmm. Oh, well, we just carry on. Um, Tell us about that kind of the response to that, because that document was key. Yeah, sure. I mean, God bless all these people now that their loved ones are getting sick or dealing with turbo cancers or strokes or they're, they're reaching out for medical advice. You know, I, it's so heartbreaking. Um, So, the your audience may know that I oversee a project of 3,250 doctors and nurses and scientists and medical fraud investigators, biostatisticians, a range of uh, high-level experts going through the Pfizer documents, which are these 450,000 pages released under court order that the FDA asked the court to keep hidden for 75 years. And um, we found, uh, we've issued 89 reports. They're all on that upper right-hand corner of Daily Clout. You can order them in book format. Um, And they've documented the greatest crime against humanity in recorded history, again, with a special focus on sterilization. Um, I'm gonna skip ahead. And and as you say, it's not my opinion, I'm not a medical doctor or a scientist. Uh, All all of these reports link to the primary source documents. Mm -hmm. So you can see for yourself, you know, we've got a report, someone just told me that her mom had a stroke. And we've got a report showing that 48% of the serious adverse events, including death uh, in the stroke category, which is a massive category for adverse events after injection, um, half of them took place within 48 hours of the injection. Um, You know, I could go on and on with the various categories that, you know, uh, emerged among the many other headlines this team broke you know, blood clots, lung clots, leg clots, uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenia, uh, neurological damage at scale, uh, hemorrhages, um, dementias, Alzheimer's, Bell's palsy, uh, joint pain, interestingly, arthritis is number one side effect. Um, Myalgia, which is muscle pain, is number two. Uh, Number three is COVID because the injections by November of 2020 were proven internally not to stop COVID, you know, to be completely ineffective. Vaccine failure was the internal language Pfizer used. Um, I, you know, I, it, it, there's not enough time for me to like document the headlines that the team has surfaced about harms that these people knew they were doing, again, especially uh, reproductive harms. But what is it really important to bring people up to date on is the last four reports. Um, the first two last week showed that through a FOIA by our lawyer, Ed Berkovich, the White House drove a concealment in May of 2021 of harms brought to their attention that were um, 
blood damage, blood clots, and myocarditis. And they looped in uh, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins, but it was 15 White House staffers convening a freakout meeting to uh, create a script, their language, which is 17 pages long, all redacted to cover up this harm. And remember what happened in 2021 was mandates. Knowing this damage that it caused, they mandated it to kids, to soldiers, to sailors, college students, and so on. But I'll skip ahead to the last really important um, story that your audience needs to know. Other researchers, including Kevin McKernan at Medicinal Genomics, uh, uh, Dr. Philip Buchholz in South Carolina, um, they've independently found that the injections are contaminated and that the contaminants are um, fragments of DNA, fragmented DNA, uh, and uh, plasmids grown in E. coli, um, which can enter your nucleus and cause untold harm. Um, but also very concerning SV40, simian virus 40, which is a carcinogen. NIH and OSHA categorize it as a carcinogen that causes cancer in laboratory animals. So we're seeing these turbo cancers, um, you know, three, four months, someone goes from perfectly healthy to very sick to dead. Things oncologists have never seen before. And oncologists like Dr. Flowers on our team, Dr. Cole, are really worried that this SV40 is a carcinogen that is related to these turbo cancers. And the last thing I'll say politically is that our team, Amy Kelly, my COO, found that Pfizer um, is concealing, redacting, while these all these questions are coming up, how did this happen? How did it get contaminated and adulterated in this way? Pfizer created at the very end of the process, the process they brought for emergency use authorizations called process one. And FDA signed off on it. It's fine. It's clean. Then Pfizer substituted an internal secret trial of process two. 200 people were injected with these contaminated formulations. They had a 2.4 times rate of adverse events as the other group. Then process two, a bait and switch, was rolled out to, into everyone's arms. And process two has the carcinogens and the DNA fragments in it. Um, and Pfizer has now redacted the manufacturing process with the FDA's collusion in their papers. Well, I think you've laid out perfect reason why people need to make sure and, and go on dailycloud.io um, and get themselves up to speed because it it never ends. There's always something coming out, and I know our viewers and listeners will be eager to to know what else is happening. Um, can I just face you? There are so many. The um, chapter eight, rethinking the Second Amendment. I would love to, but I'm not going to even touch that. Uh, chapter twelve, Thanksgiving gathering. That um, kind of the kingdom of God. That connection uh, of community. Uh, chapter sixteen, how the ancient gods returned. I, I love that just because the whole spiritual aspect. There's so much, but. Maybe just to finish off, I never having written a book, but I assume you start out with a a plan. This is what you want to do, and I assume through the process you learn things along the way. And um, as you put it together, uh, people can get it from the the ninth of November. What what do you want to leave with people? What do you want to portray um, as they get the book, as they read it? What do you want to, that lasting uh, thought to be with them as they read through it? 
Oh, great question, Peter. Um, may I note that you can pre-order it now, even before the 9th of November, and that's important because it's, it sends a signal to the publishing industry yeah. uh, when people pre-order, so please please do. Um, so I won't get canceled yet again. Um, let's see, what do I want people to leave with? Well, I guess this is kind of a different book than my other books. It's not an argument. Mm. It's, um, it's a reflection. And I think a lot of us have, maybe all of us have been traumatized by the last two and a half years and also traumatized by the fact that our suffering and the shock we endured is being papered over and, and kind of dropped through the memory hole. So I was really inspired by a book called I Will Bear Witness by Victor Klemper, which is just literally almost a journal of, you know, his his life, I think, in Munich, you know, as the before and as the Nazis were coming to power. And just bit by bit, he couldn't shop in his local store. And bit by bit, he lost his housing. Bit by bit, he, you know, the neighbors turned away from him and he just chronicled it. Um, I think it's really important for there to just be a witness to this time, you know, in my humble way. I tried to to do that. And I think it's um, healing for people to have their experience kind of validated and reflected. Um, it helps us actually move forward instead of being kind of pushed forward by, by the tyrants who want us to forget about it. That's number one. And I guess number two, what do I want? Well, I guess I, you know, we're not a allowed to proselytize in Judaism and I don't like to ever. I think all these things are so personal. But I actually do think we're at an inflection point in history, Peter, where we may not survive if we mm -hmm. don't uh, look at ourselves in the mirror. And, you know, if that if that leads to us reconnecting to God, I think that will help us survive. So I probably hope that that might happen as well, that, you know, people might, um, I mean, such a surprise to me is to read the Geneva Bible and see that the persona of God is completely different from the way his persona has been translated in subsequent 500 years of translations. And it turns out in the original Hebrew and the Geneva Bible, super nice guy, <laughs> you know, like very different from this like distant, remote, judgmental, irrational, punitive, censorious persona, which is all about the intermediary, right? It turns out you don't need an intermediary. I mean, God isn't in heaven. It turns out that's a mistranslation. God is in the sky. Like literally God keeps being written out of translations, but it's, you know, Jacob didn't wrestle with the angel. It was God, you know, preparing him for this very difficult day. Like over and over again in the original, God just shows up for us in a non-scary, very human way, I guess I'd say. And that's a surprise to me. So I guess I would want people who are feeling lost to have a sense of that, um, because very hopeful news. Well, it, I certainly read not as an argument. You're right, but as a as you grasping, wrestling, understanding um, for you personally, and also what it means to have a faith and and to look up in these times. Um, and people can yeah, it's available as ebook, as audiobook, and as a physical copy. So um, if uh, nothing else, if you want to take away from this, then I encourage the, the viewers, listeners to go click on the link. It'll be in the description and you can pre-order that and get that from the 9th of November. Naomi, I appreciate you coming on. Love the book. Thank you so much for sharing with me and our audience. Thank you so much, Peter. We always love talking to you. Thank you so much. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list 
donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.